This is an ABC podcast. Hello, it's me, Viv Rasmussen. Hope you're super well. I'm by myself for this episode. The legendary Dee Salmon will be back next week. She's been lending her voice on The Brekkie Show and absolutely crushing it. But to be honest, I'm going to be so happy once she's back because I've missed her. I'm not going to lie. But for now, it is just you and me. And I'm excited about this episode because this is a topic that I've wanted to cover for such a long time. Out of all the letters in the LGBTQIA acronym, I bet the I is the one you know the least about. It's definitely the one that I know the least about. And if you don't know what the I even stands for, well, look, you're probably not alone. It's the least talked about and seemingly the least known. I'm talking about intersex. So in this episode, we're going to talk about it. And hopefully by the end of the app, you're going to be a wealth of knowledge and understanding about this amazing, diverse group of people. So in this episode, we're going to talk about it. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll be a wealth of knowledge and understanding about this amazing, diverse group of people. So we're going to find out what it means to be intersex, what kind of challenges intersex people can face, and how a new draft law to protect the rights of intersex people in the ACT could change history in Australia if it's passed. All right, let's kick off. What does it mean to be intersex? I got Morgan Carpenter to explain. He's a bioethicist and the executive director of Intersex Human Rights Australia. He also invented the intersex flag, so he's kind of a big deal and like a pioneer for intersex rights. So here's Morgan with the definition. We use a fairly standard definition of what it means to have an intersex variation, and that's to have innate sex characteristics, characteristics that we're born with that don't fit ideas about what it means to be um, a, a boy or a girl or a, or a woman or a man. And there are specific tracks and, and they can affect people's gonads, genitals, uh, chromosomes, or, or the way that our bodies respond to hormones as well. There are many different ways in which people can be intersex. Yeah, it's kind of complex. It's a really varied experience for individual intersex people. There are over 40 different traits and variations. And like Morgan said, it ranges across hormonal traits, having different chromosomes and sexual anatomy. So that might mean that a man has what might be regarded as as a micropenis or or that a woman has uh, only a partially formed vagina or or doesn't have a uterus uh, or has gonads or or genitals that are seen as being atypical. That's just scratching the surface of what physically being intersex could look like, on the outside or the inside. It's funny because a lot of people might think, I've never met an intersex person before, but there's actually a decent chance you have. It's estimated that 1.7% of the world's population is intersex. And like Morgan said, there are plenty of traits that you might not be able to identify or spot straight away, like having a variation of chromosomes or hormones. And that's what happened to this TikToker. Don't be freaked out, but I'm going to share some information with you about my genitals. And I swear it's not creepy or sexual or anything. Like, this is a purely anatomical conversation. We're all humans with bodies, and we should talk about that. This is Sydney. Their TikTok username is at Sydney Kidney Bean, and that's a video they uploaded that went absolutely gangbusters. 
It's racked up over 6.5 million views and thousands of comments from people asking questions and sending love and support to them. And I wanted to chat to them about their journey of being intersex. Because for Sydney, they found out they were intersex way later in life, at 17 years old. It's quite recent that I even realised I fell into that category. And basically what happened is eventually I got to the age of 17 and I hadn't menstruated and I was like, okay, I've put it out of my mind this long, but it's, it's for real weird now. <laughs> but I don't speak about these things with my family. I don't speak much about my body or puberty or sex. We're very private people. And so I was trying to figure this out on my own. Why wasn't I menstruating? And could I use tampons? And if I used a tampon, maybe I would just start menstruating? I don't know, might as well try it. There was no getting anything in there because my opening, when I took a look with a mirror for the first time at 17, <laughs> my opening was so small, it was smaller than my urethra. So that's the discovery of my initial condition. Um, then eventually I was, well, I just kept Googling until I found the term for it, which is a microperforate hymen. No one believed me. They said, it's normal for a young lady to not know her body. And I was like, I didn't know my body a week ago, but I sure as hell know it now because I have looked and I tried to figure it out and I couldn't. And I realized that I would need surgery. So I had to tell my mom to take me to the gynecologist to get surgery. This all happened at 17. At that same time, I was battling cystic acne, which I've later found out means that my hormones are messed up. <laughs> so, then we know that eventually I would like to have penetrative sex. Um, so we got to open that thing up. And also it is dangerous to keep your vagina closed in case I were to start menstruating that can cause toxic shock syndrome um, and other bad conditions. So they called it an exploratory surgery. It's only recent that I realized it's actually a hymenectomy, but they just called it exploratory and described that they would be making an X-shaped incision into the hymen that will give them, well, will give me an opening, which will really um, be nice for me. <laughs> but it will also allow them to more easily tell if I have female reproductive organs. It took just a couple of weeks to schedule the surgery. I was out of school for a week. I was laying down for a while and had a catheter. It was extremely painful to heal from it, but all went well. It's interesting that the only reason why I was able to discover my intersexuality is through unwanted symptoms. It's kind of disappointing not having a vaginal opening and having severe acne. That's how I discovered the main problems with my hormones. And yeah, same thing with menstruating. I can assume and doctors have assumed that it's because of heightened androgens, I suppose, that I have more typically male hormones than other females do. A lot of the interest over my intersexuality is the fact that it's an anomaly and that it's weird and people just like hearing about weird bodies and that's okay but it is disheartening and a little bit dehumanizing. Have you sort of joined like any intersex communities or you know what I mean like found your people in that sense and and like had chats with those people? No the closest thing I have is people commenting and messaging me who had hymenectomies who have hymen differences and they want to talk about that experience and, and relate to me and that's greatly appreciated but 
I'm not aware of anyone in my real life. I've never personally met anyone else who identified as intersex. I'm certain that I have met someone who's intersex, but I don't identify where I live because it's scary to be anyone here. If you're not one of the masses, if you're not part of the church or um, a certain political party, then it is quite dangerous. And so I think that that's likely why I haven't been able to find a, a community of people who are like-minded, supportive, and well, other intersex people in my real life is because it's not safe to be that here. Talk me through how your intersex identity has kind of worked with your gender identity. For the most part, it just made me realize how little it matters to be born a certain way or deemed something in particular, because a lot of people find power in their gender, um, but they normally are finding power in the genders that they are reclaiming for themselves. Um, The title to be a man or to be a woman or to be neither of the two can be extremely powerful. But in my experience, this has been so confounding. And like I said, I'm discovering intersexuality by the worst means, not because I'm in a place where I get to explore and understand my body. I didn't grow up being able to talk about my gender or, or, um, my genitals. <laughs> so I just feel like I'd rather not associate with anything. A term that I've learned from my followers is agender. And I prefer to be agender right now because it's nice to not feel the pressures of being man or woman. Just nothing is suitable for me right now. Sydney's experience of being intersex is unique to them in the way that they found out later in life and the specific physical and hormonal traits that they have. And while intersex people have differences from each other in their intersexuality, there's a common thread that ties this community of people together. It's that pressure or expectation from society, friends, parents and doctors to fit into a binary of male and female. This is something that Bonnie Hart has experienced as an intersex woman. She's developed a group-based support program that brings intersex people and family members together with trained mental health professionals and intersex peer workers. It's called Interlink. And before providing this amazing resource to people, she had to navigate the world as a young intersex person with basically no information or reference points to what being intersex looked like. And I spoke to her about this journey. My particular intersex variation is called androgen insensitivity. So it means that my body metabolises testosterone and other androgens in a really different kind of way from what's considered typical. So even though I have XY chromosomes, my body developed pretty typically female. And it wasn't until a while later that I had a hernia in my um, abdomen and that sort of uh, triggered the clinicians that fixed that to do some further testing and then found out that I had AIS. So AIS is a clinical diagnosis that's called androgen insensitivity syndrome. Um, and, and one of the big things about AIS, it means that um, I have testes um, and those testes are in my abdomen um, or they were in my abdomen when I was a child. Um, and so because those testes were not where testes are typically considered to hang out, which is just below the body in a testicle, um, they put those testes on a high risk watch and eventually um, moved towards suggesting that they were removed. What would have happened if they had kept them in? Would it have changed like your hormones, etc.? So 
when you remove someone's testes or ovaries or ovo testes or reproductive organs, then that person kind of needs to have artificial hormones for the rest of their life to have like a puberty and also to kind of maintain your biological functions. So when I was 12, I was given a gonadectomy <laughs> and then um, ever since then I've been on artificial hormones on HRT. Originally I was given uh, estrogen but uh, that really didn't sit well with me so I actually kind of stopped taking it um, and it was only later on in life that I found a doctor that supported me to be able to actually access testosterone replacement therapy because it was actually kind of denied to me for a lot of my life because I'm female and um, accessing testosterone wasn't um, covered by the wasn't covered by Medicare at the time and um, and also people just thought that because I have um, AIS which means I would be insensitive to testosterone that it was there was no point in me having it it's one of the reasons why the testes were removed in the first place. So Sydney was 17 when she had surgery on her microperforated hymen, which was a really necessary and important surgery to have. But there are a lot of intersex people who have had a rough time when it comes to surgeries. They've been invasive and extensive and they've had to move through a medical complex that's really rigid in defining male and female. That's me doing that in air quotes, by the way. For Bonnie, her surgery was deemed necessary at the time, but it wasn't easy. I did have a say in the surgery when I was 12. I, I signed a consent form. But the the thing was is that it wasn't just an isolated event. I had a whole childhood of going to doctors and having, you know, to, to specialist centres. I lived in a regional centre and so I had to travel to the big city to go see doctors during my school holidays where I had physical examinations that were pretty invasive. Um, with lots of people looking on, lots of medical students coming to check me out. And this clinical approach with her was pretty dehumanising at times. You know, my parents didn't really defend my boundaries very well to the doctors and the doctors didn't really respect my boundaries. So, like I, I kind of got myself in situations where I kind of felt lesser then because I was told that I was lesser <laughs> by the kind of you know, medical industrial complex. Looking back, she's been able to reflect on the bigger picture of how our current medical system views intersex people and the new information that came to light about her intersex trait and its supposed risk to her body. That surgery was based on the idea that if my testes were left in my abdomen, then they would have a high chance of becoming cancerous. And my parents were told that that chance was about 50%. And, and cancer is quite scary and there, there are cancer risks associated with, um, you know, street gonads and, and um, gonads that are in situ. But there's lots of benefits that come from being able to produce your own hormones naturally throughout the rest of your life. And, um, you know, even though my parents were told that it was a 50% chance, in 2013 there was a Senate inquiry into the forced and coerced sterilisation of intersex people in Australia. And some of the research that they did found statistics as low as 0.8 of a percent um, chance, which is massively different. You know, there's lots of things that have higher chance than 0.8 of a percent that we don't preemptively remove, you know, like because of a threat of cancer. So I think that there was another agenda that was going on, which was about making my body be more typically female. And that meant 
removing testes because testes don't go with females. You might have heard Bonnie mention forced sterilisation just now, and we're going to get into this and how things might be changing. A lot of intersex people don't have a choice in what kind of surgeries they have when they're really, really young. But exactly what kind of surgeries are being done? Well, some doctors perform surgeries on intersex people at a really young age to affirm their sex or to cosmetically alter their genitalia. The current situation is is troubling. So we know that um, girls with intersex traits have been subjected to surgeries to, quote-unquote, enhance the appearance of their genitalia. And infant boys can undergo surgeries to ensure that they're able to urinate appropriately. Uh, And that word appropriate is doing a lot of work. What it means is a belief that it is a function of being male to stand to urinate. So why do doctors do this? What's going on here? It's a construction of intersex traits as, as being abnormal and in need of fixing. Our argument fundamentally says that, you know, these medical interventions are are often grounded in gender stereotypes and other kind of social and cultural norms where where they are determining the kind of treatment children get, that those kinds of treatments should wait until individuals are old enough to make our own decisions, our own informed decisions about how we want to be in the world and how we want our bodies to look and behave and function. Not only is it about having consent to do this, Often these surgeries just aren't necessary to do at such a young age, and they can cause more harm than good. Early surgery can often be followed by more surgery. So we know that infant vaginoplasties and genital surgeries can lead to a loss of sexual function and sensation, to impaired sexual function and sensation, and and, and can also lead to a need for more surgeries later in life because scar tissue doesn't necessarily grow at the same rate and in the same way as the rest of the child's body. Um, And that issue is also true for for infant boys who are subjected to surgery um, to enable them to urinate while standing. Um, Often those surgeries lead to a a narrowing of the tube that that you urinate through. Um, and, And that then often needs more surgery. There are many reasons why these surgeries are are not not really acceptable early in life. Dr Garvey is a clinical psychotherapist, relationship counsellor and clinical family therapist who's been involved in intersex advocacy work and provided therapeutic support for intersex people and communities for over a decade. And he agrees with Morgan here. He's seen a lot of physical impacts in his clients. And usually it's pitched as being a one-off, but I've talked to people who've had 12 and 14 different surgical procedures that cause scarring, that cause uh, limited tissue sensation. Some people have lifelong incontinence. There's a lot of impact um, and not a whole lot of follow-up long-term. But as well as impacted sexual function, sensation, and the burden of just having multiple surgeries as you grow up, Dr. Garvey reckons these surgeries can cause some pretty real mental health issues. I've worked with a lot of intersex adults whose experiences of chronic invalidation and erasure have meant that they have really a lot of difficulty asserting boundaries in intimate relationships and in workplaces. In other words, those those early violations, and people do often experience those as traumatic, really affect people's ability to trust intimate partners, to enjoy satisfying adult erotic lives, Um, And a lot of that stems from having their 
right to privacy and bodily autonomy violated early in life. So I, I think there are profound impacts. Again, it's not really possible to stereotype that and say, look, all people everywhere. But I think um, a lot of intersex people have trauma from not having been consulted, not having been respected. And I think there's also a lot of ruptures between people and their parents because um, a lot of parents thought they were doing the best thing for people and didn't realize that they weren't. And, you know, at, in adulthood, I've had to work with a lot of intersex adults um, who wanted to repair relationships with their caregivers and parents, but found that really difficult because they felt quite um, mistreated and traumatized by that. So all this is sounding pretty shit, right? I mean, it's pretty heavy, but there is something good on the horizon. There's a new law that's just been drafted in the ACT that could change the way we approach treating intersex people in Australia if it's passed. So what is this new draft law? The legislation will essentially end deferrable medical interventions on children before they're old enough to make decisions themselves about how they want their bodies to look and function. Um, and there will be exceptions, of course, for, for emergency uh, and urgent uh, medical procedures. And there's an overwhelming feeling of positivity in the intersex community about this new legislation, that it's going to help alleviate some of the shame and stigma experienced by intersex people and boost everyone's understanding and awareness of what it means to be intersex. Here's Bonnie's thoughts on that. Well, the bills actually presents a really eloquent solution to what has been um, labelled internationally as human rights violations, you know, like let's not mince any words here, like this is actually a um, serious situation. So the bill itself presents an eloquent solution, which is, you know, anything that's actually really medically necessary or life-preserving can happen. But anything that's not is just deferred until the point that the individual can make their own decisions about their, over their body. And that's all that intersex advocates and activists have been asking for for decades. So when will it pass? Well, I mean, the ACT government made a commitment to undertake this work in 2019. So it's taken about three years, roughly, to, to, to get to the point of having draft legislation. You know, and my hope is that the government will move forward and introduce the bill into the ACT Parliament, uh, perhaps later on this year. And can we expect other states in Australia to follow suit? Last year, the, the Victorian government, uh, the Minister for Health and Equality, made a similar commitment. Um, and as well as that, the, the New South Wales government and its first LGBTI health strategy has acknowledged the need to take account of what's happening in these other jurisdictions. Um, but really, I think in some jurisdictions, we're very far from seeing action. It could be a few months or more before we see this law pass. It's a huge step in the right direction for intersex people claiming their rights back. But in the meantime, there's still a lot of work to be done. So what can endosex, that is non-intersex people, do to support the intersex community? Here's Dr Garvey again. What you can do is learn more on your own time from many intersex people who've already given a lot of emotional labour to share their insights in guides and articles and video logs and podcasts. Pip, you mentioned TikTok. 
all over social media, you know, elevate these voices when you're talking about this topic, refer to intersex-led community organizations like Intersex Human Rights Australia, think about yellow tick and really challenge oppressive behavior and comments when you witness them, especially those of us who are health professionals. When you hear parents or health professionals trying to speak on behalf of intersex people without ever having listened to those intersex people themselves, um, really challenge that and speak up. So if you're listening to this and you are intersex or, hey, maybe you're identifying with some of the things that have been said on this episode, here's some advice from Sydney. You are allowed to feel concern and you are allowed to feel excitement too because it's pretty cool to be different. And your number one step should be to learn what you need because sometimes that's going to be medical care and that's what you're going to have to do before anything else. But sometimes you're going to need a friend And you can very easily find those friends on social media or information that will make you feel comforted simply through a Google search. So that would be my advice. This has been such an incredible episode to put together. I have personally learnt so much from speaking to everybody who came together for this. A big thank you to Dr. Garvey and Sarah, Morgan Carpenter, Bonnie Hart and Sydney. Everyone was just so beautiful and candid and real and open with their journeys. And this is a highly personal thing. So I just want to reiterate like my huge thanks for everyone who opened up to me about this and helped me understand things that previously I didn't know much about. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and you got something out of it as much as I did. I loved making it. And also check out the show notes. I've popped some links down there um, to Interlink and some other resources for intersex people, um, all to do with what Bonnie's working on at the moment at Interlink. So check them out. In the meantime, send us an email, thehookup at abc.net.au or get in our DMs at Triple J, The Hookup on Instagram. We love to hear from you. And if you want to, give us a rating if you are able to rate this podcast. Um, Give us a star. Subscribe? Nah, no one says subscribe anymore. But it's really great to have you. So thanks so much. I'll catch you next week. Bye.